0: Let's turn in our Bibles for our sermon this morning to Isaiah 40. We are going back to the passage we read last week. We're going to go hopefully dig into it, begin to dig into it. See what the Lord would teach us. Isaiah 40 verses 5 through I mean 1 through 5. Comfort O comfort my people, says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken the word of the Lord. We have been looking at texts that teach us about God. And the reason we are looking at these texts that teach us about God is because we are trying to work on a series of sermons that helps us to disciple our children, teach us what to teach our children. And so last week we asked this question, what are we to teach our children to look for in the pulpit? And we said that we are to look for a man who's converted to God. We said we're to look for a man who's commissioned by God To preach content from Scripture about Jesus Christ. And then to call, that man is to call you to Jesus Christ as he preaches those words. Now, as we turn the corner just a little, we're going to ask this question. What are we to teach our children to listen for in the pulpit? And we basically, we basically answered that in general last week. We said you're looking for a man to preach the gospel, to preach content from the scriptures, and point you to Jesus and call you to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, today we want to listen here in this text and look at it more deeply What do we listen for? What do we teach our children to listen for when they come to church? Now, as we look at this passage, in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet is confronting people who have been what? They have been idolatrous. We had an interesting conversation with men yesterday, and one of our men brought up the fact that... I remember Isaiah, he cuts down a tree, he makes some food with part of the tree, he warms his house house with another part of the tree, and he makes with the other part of the tree a God to worship. These people are worshiping things that are dead, and he's calling them away from their idolatry for the first 39 chapters. And as he comes to chapter 39, he predicts that the people of God are going to go into Babylonian captivity. And it did happen. Now, we can... March backwards to 605 B.C. And we could talk about 597 B.C. But in 586 B.C. The Assyrians were overpowered by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar the Superman over Babylon. And they overtake Judah. And very terrible things happen to Jerusalem and God's people in Judah. The temple was demolished. Jerusalem is totally sacked. And the people are deported into Babylonian captivity. And so the people are there and they are defeated, and they're distressed, and they're disillusioned. And while they're there, you can look at verse 27. It says "It says this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? They feel abandoned. They feel forgotten. They feel like God doesn't care. That's really something, isn't it? What does God do when people feel this way? What does God do when His people act this way? They're there because of their own fault. They're the covenant breakers. They're the ones who are worshiping wood, stone, and pebbles, and whatever else. They're the ones who are sinning. What does God do when His people act this way? Well, y'all know the answer, don't you? He just keeps sending more preachers. He just keeps sending preachers. In fact, he sends an unnamed band of preachers and he still calls these people who are now in Babylonian captivity, he still calls them my people. He says, comfort, oh comfort, my who? My people, my people. In fact, look at what it says there, comfort, oh comfort. That's a second person plural imperative. In other words, it can be translated like this. You comfort, you, plural, men, comfort. My people. It's a whole band of unnamed ministers or preachers. Uh, I think the reason he doesn't name them is because the minister is not important. It's the message that's important. The comfort, the comfort that's that's being preached is what's important. In verse 9, he says this. He says, "O Zion. Bearer of good news. He says, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. In other words, there's these evangelists in Zion, evangelists in Jerusalem, and they are preaching this message of comfort. Remember what Isaiah was supposed to do in Isaiah 6 9? He's commissioned to go and preach. I used to always think this in my mind, to go preach to the rocks, to go preach to people who are dead, to go preach to people whose eyes are smeared over and ears are full of wax. And so as we turn, he's turning the people. He's crying out to these people who are disciplined by God and bruised by God's own discipline. He's preaching comfort. And in Isaiah 40, as you turn from 39 to 40, it's almost like Isaiah has, is awakened in a dream. He's no longer speaking to the folks who are not in captivity yet he's telling them they're going to go in captivity and now you get to chapter 40 and he starts talking to people who are in captivity they're in the future now he sees the future he sees the people discouraged he sees the people feeling down and he's commissioning all these men to go out and preach comfort this band unnamed band of men to go out and preach comfort maybe you're discouraged today Maybe you're disappointed today. Maybe you're dissatisfied with everything today. Have you been there? (laughs) Romance, your job, your spouse, your sports, school. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you feel like God's abandoned you. What does God do when we feel this way? Well, he just keeps sending more preachers to preach comfort to us. Number one. Teach your children to listen for comforting words from the pulpit. These folks are in a bad way. (laughs) They're in bondage. In fact, they're in bondage for their own sins. They're suffering. God is chastening them. It's painful. It's a difficult time. They are experiencing what we would call the covenant curses. And what does God say if His people will not repent for long enough time? What does He do? He has them vomited out of the land He gave them. Now they're in Babylonian captivity. Did they sin? Yes. Did they suffer? Yes. Does God leave them there in their sin and suffering? No. He sends men to preach. He sends men to say, I'm not frowning on you. He sends men to say, I'm not far from you. I'm near to you. I still call you my people, even though you're in a far land. I still call you mine. I still have great mercy towards you. Look at verse two. It's a real important verse. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. There's three things he calls out here. There's three points. We could preach a sermon on every one of them, but we're not. We're going to pick one out. Call out to her that her warfare has ended. That's a reference to hard labor coming to an end. That's a reference to their forced labor living in Babylonian captivity. It's coming to an end. God's discipline is about to stop. Then he says, call out to her that her iniquity has been removed. That's an interesting statement. Her iniquity has been removed. That's a reference to what's out there coming. In Isaiah 53, there's a, there's a sacrifice that's been made that's going to remove their iniquity. This is a first reference to it. It's coming in, in chapter 53. A sacrifice has been made for sin. And then there's another reference. She has received the Lord's hand, the double for all her sins. And that's that's simply saying there's three or four different ways to look at that. But I believe it's basically saying this. Here's your sin and here's the duplicate payment for your sin. Exact payment for your sin has been made. It's what, what really should grab us is the second point. Call out to her, that her iniquity has been removed. Call out to her that her sin has been paid for. Is that not the comforting statement in the line there? Christianity, folks, is not just about sin. It is about sin, isn't it? It's about sin. But it's not only about sin. And you run into a person who all they do is talk about sin and they never get to the person who saves you from sin, that's a problem. It's not just about sin. If it's just about sin, then throw me in the trash. I don't want to live anymore. But I do want to live if it's about sin and about a holy Savior who comes and He pays the price for my sin and the Lamb's blood is poured out on me and I am forgiven. All this burden, all this guilt, all this stuff that I carry with me. Go read Pilgrim's Progress. He's carrying the load of sin on His back. He gets to the cross where His sin is paid for. It falls off and it goes into the ground, into the sepulcher. This is what, it's not just about sin but it's also about how my twistedness and how my sin is paid for on a cross. It's about my sins receiving an exact duplicate punishment, getting exactly what they deserved. It's about you and me hearing Jesus say, my child, it literally says my child there in Mark chapter 2, my child, your sins are forgiven. Do these words not bring comfort to us? Do you not need to know that God forgives sin? In John chapter 8, Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman caught in the act of adultery. They think they've got him hung on a dilemma. They they got him. They think they've got him. And so he takes a stone and pulls it up and says, let let uh, the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Guess who left first? Guess who walked away from the crowd first? The old guys, the old guys, why do they walk away first? Because they know that sin permeates everything in them. They understand it more deeply. And so they walk away. They walk away. They didn't walk to Jesus like the woman staying in front of Him. (laughs) They walked away, but they understood that they they sinned. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? Mark chapter 2 You know, this is probably one of my favorite verses. I think I could preach a bunch of sermons out of this passage. But we all know the story. There's four men who have a paralytic friend and they want their paralytic friend to be able to walk. And so they bring this friend on a pallet to Jesus and Jesus is in a house. House is full. Outside the house, there's all kinds of people, all people standing all around. There's no way to get this man into where Jesus is. So they just quit and go home. Is that what they did? No. No, they didn't quit and go home. They persevered. They put on their thinking caps. What are we going to do to get this guy in front of Jesus? And so they get on top of the roof. And they dig a hole through the roof. And can you see all this dirt coming down while Jesus is speaking to all this group of people? And all the little pieces and all the little parts and all the little stuff and all the little dust. And probably if you're me, you'd be starting to sneeze, right? We need Bob to go clean up all the dust off the floor that after this is happening because we need Bob to clean up our... Our dirty, our, you know, everything that's getting on the ground. And so here's all this taking place. And Jesus says to him, my child, your sins are forgiven. And can you imagine those friends? Those friends are going, that's not why we brought him. And can you hear the Pharisees on the the other side of the couch? They're over there going, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus says, okay, I want to show you something. I'm going to show you that what I just said, that, that part, the invisible part about the sins being forgiven, I'm going to show you that I can forgive those sins by showing you that I can do something here, right in front of you, something magnificent. Sir, would you rise and take up your pallet and go home? And he does. Now, I want you to think about this man a little Let's Let's Okay. Uh, I've been wanting to say, I think this is so funny. I was in my uh, Reformed Evangelism class with one of the ministers from New Bronzeville with uh, Pastor Miller. And Pastor Miller saw me get out of, out of bed and uh, he saw me aching and groaning. And he, said, he says, you know, one of my men in my church says when you get to be 50 years old and you wake up and you get out of bed, all the check engine lights come on. And that's right, isn't it? So here's this, here's the paralytic. Later in his life, maybe he's not moving. Maybe all the check engine lights are coming on for him. And he's thinking to himself, what was more important for me to hear rise, take up my my pallet and walk? Or was it more important for me to hear my child, your sins are forgiven? Which one's more important? Because the man's going to die. And when he dies, he needs to have his sins forgiven to enter into glory. What's more important, old man, for me to hear? Rise or your sins are forgiven. Oh, friends, we've been forgiven of our sins. We have an atoning work that's been made for our sins. Do you believe in the forgiveness of your sins? Are there times when you come to worship and you come in here to worship and all of a sudden you realize, I have been forgiven of my sins. Maybe you're reading your Bible and you're praying. Tears come to your eyes because you have been forgiven of your sins. An atonement has been made. The burden is lifted off. Have you confessed your sins lately? You know, one of the reasons we do it every Sunday is to kind of get it in your mind that we need to do it on a regular basis. Right? We do it together. Have you confessed your sins lately? David tells us if we will acknowledge our sins that God forgives us immediately. Teach your children to listen for comforting words from the pulpit. Second, teach your children to listen for the coming of the King from the pulpit. Now, now, this is, I'm probably, there's probably four layers here. I don't have enough time to give you every. I'm going to mix it up a little bit, and I think you'll forgive me. But I want to give you the first layer, and the last three layers, I'm going to kind of clump them together. The first layer of this text about the king is coming is to the captives who were hearing Isaiah and his preachers preach this for the first time The Lord is coming. The Lord's glory will be revealed. The Lord is coming. And so in order to get ready for the Lord coming, we're told to prepare, prepare, clear the way, he says here. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So all these guys, all these folks hearing this, they're to get ready. God is coming. The glory of the Lord is coming to set them free from Babylonian captivity. They're going to be set free from this. All of it's going to come to an end. And every valley is going to be lifted up, and every mountain will be, and hill will be made low, and the rough ground is going to be smoothed over by God's greater. And finally, the preaching voice says this, the Lord's appearance, the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. But think about how the glory of the Lord was revealed at this time in 5.36. Cyrus the Persian comes in and he takes over from the Babylonians. And Cyrus the Persian, he has a different strategy. He doesn't take people into captivity. What he does is he lets the people go home. And so all the, Jew, all of the Jews, they go back home, along with all many other nations of people, they go back home and they're able to rebuild their, their temple. I mean, their houses and their temple, they, they kind of were a little slow on that, but they finally rebuilt their temple and when they did, that was God's glory. It's just not what you expect. Cyrus the Persian sends them home. And they rebuild their temple. And if you go and you do a little study on how big the temple was, it was about the size of a tennis court compared to Solomon's temple that was about the size of Arlington Stadium where Dallas Cowboys play. It's a small place. And all the old people that could remember Solomon's temple and remember the glory of it and the grandeur of it, they wept but all those young people that were born in captivity, they were excited about having a place to worship God again. The glory of the Lord was revealed. It's just not the way we expect. Now, As we come to these second, third, and fourth layers, we see this ultimate fulfillment of this passage in the New Testament. The King is coming. The glory of the Lord is going to be revealed and He tells them so. And He says this, Prepare... For the king's coming. So just as those captives prepared for the Lord to save them out of Babylon, all of God's people are to prepare for the king who is coming. And in John the Baptist, we find this man, this preacher named. In Luke 3, 4, John the Baptist takes these words on his lips and he says this, clear the way for the Lord, make his path straight. And what does John the Baptist preach? When he's preaching and getting people ready for Jesus' coming, he preaches the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He preaches this preparation for the coming of the King of glory. In those days, a physical preparation would take place, right? If you've ever watched some of these movies like Judah Ben-Hur, I was talking about Judah Ben-Hur with somebody the other day. If you watch any of these movies and you see a, a governor or you see some big dignitary coming, they're coming down the road and they have those grand, beautiful white horses and the streets are immaculate. They picked up all the debris, they smooth smooth over things and they make everything clean. The king's coming. And so John the Baptist is speaking not about physical preparation, but pre- the preparation of our of the heart. Make your highway clear, make your highway your the heart uh, ready to receive King Jesus who's coming. This is what we might call the disruption of repentance. Uh, Let's just get real. Have y'all seen some disruption and upheaval recently on the way to church maybe? If I go to Katy from my house, I see disruption and I see upheaval. I see big old jackhammers smashing up cement. I see big old things picking up this and picking up that. I see guys working out there on these big machinery. I see them picking up more cement and pouring more cement. I mean... Make up your mind, guys. Oh, well, we got to make it wider. Okay. I and mean, it' it's just going to get just as busy as it ever has been. But this is what you see. It's upheaval, isn't it? And make sure you don't, you know, touch these wires up here and all the rest. It's all there, upheaval. Well, that's what he's saying it has to happen in our hearts. This is disruption, Break your hard hearts. Remove stones, boulders out, roots out, runners out. Men, listen to me. There's not a one of you. Not one of you would go to work tomorrow not prepared. Not one of you, if you've got a report to do, would you go without it being done. Not one of you. You would be embarrassed to death not to have your stuff ready. Right? You with me? I'm, that's me. I'm talking about me. I'm got. I, I get my stuff ready, man. <laughs> Ask me what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to get ready for Sunday tomorrow, because Sunday's coming, <laughs> right? Friday's coming. That report's coming. And I got to get it ready. Well, friend, listen. Are we not going to take the same, at least the same kind of pains with our own souls to get ready for Jesus coming? The king's coming is certain. Verse 4, let me read it again. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain. The rugged terrain of broad valley. The King's coming. Think about the king coming at the, on the days of the Exodus. God comes and the days of the Exodus. And we think about Moses. But God came in the days of the Exodus. And Pharaoh was lowered to the ground. His power was nullified. You've got all of Egypt going down. You've got all this stuff, this rough smoothed over by God's power. His people are set free through the, through the blood of a lamb. And when Jesus comes, if you and I are not preparing, if we're not going through this jackhammering stuff and all this upheaval kind of thing in, in our souls, we won't be ready for his coming, but he still is going to come. We just won't be part of the kingdom. I want you to see the appearance of the king. We're making these preparations. And when he comes, it says, it's going to be a glorious coming. Then the glory of the Lord Jesus is going to be revealed. But what is that? It's not what we expect. Now, I can give you wonderful um, definitions, but it's not what we expect. Think about it. So here's Israel. God overwhelms Egypt. God brings them to Mount Sinai. Moses builds a portable tabernacle and the glory of the Lord is there. Is that what you expect? And then when God brings the people out of Babylon and he brings them into his land, they rebuild their homes and they rebuild a small little temple and that's the glory of God. Is that what you expect? And then we see Jesus comes. And just like we saw the Lord in a tent several times before, now he's coming in the tent of a human being's body. Is that what you expect? Here's the glory of God in a tent, a human tent. The glory of God would dwell in a tent at the the Exodus. The glory of God would dwell in Solomon's temple. The glory of God would dwell in a small little tent made or a temple made after Babylonian captivity. And now the word becomes flesh and tents among us. And John says, we beheld his glory. In Christ, we find all the glory of God. It's just not what we expected. In World War II, the Germans developed what is called a micro dot. I don't know if any of y'all ever heard of a micro dot. But a micro dot back in those days, it was as big as a, a, a dot above an eye or a dot at the end of a sentence. But the German micro dot contain, could contain inside of it tons of information for them to send back and forth uh, as they were fighting in World War II. And J. Edgar Hoover called the German micro dot this, the enemy's masterpiece of espionage. In the person of Jesus, to look at him, he's looking like looking at a dot over an eye. In looking at Jesus, he's lo- it looks like you're looking at a period at the end of a sentence, but there's way more than that there, isn't there? This is the glory of God revealed. Why? is the glory of God revealed in this way. Because God loves you so much, He wants to be as close to you as He possibly can. So He's going to come through every barrier. He's going to do everything He can to fit into our skin and know what, we, what it's like to be in our bodies. He will level everything down. He will overcome every barrier in order to be close to us. That's why He comes this way. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, but believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Now those are... If you go and read some commentaries, you'll find out that those are the most bled, sweated over, cried over verses in the Bible. What's, what's Jesus saying here? Does Jesus mean that he's literally going to go get a carpenter's belt out? going to get a hammer. He's going to get the nails. And he's going to go and build a room for us in heaven? Is that what he's talking about? If you notice verse 2 in John 14, it says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. The point is, the rooms are already there. The rooms have already been built. The rooms are already there. So what's He doing? What's the preparation so that you and I can be with Him where He is? Well, the preparation is the cross. That's the glory. The preparation is somebody else taking out a hammer. Preparation is somebody else taking out nails. So the preparation is somebody driving nails in His hands and His feet. That's the preparation that opens the way up to heaven so that you can be in that place with Him where He is. The rooms are already there, folks. The preparations, the cross, it's just not what we expect. I want you to think about a defensive end. <laughs> and I don't, I, you know, just wait till the end, Okay? <laughs> But I haven't watched football very much in probably 35, 40 years. But I do remember how it goes. But I want you to think about a defensive end. I want you to think about a defensive end. He comes rushing in and he grabs hold of the quarterback. And let's assume that it's okay to smash the quarterback in the ground and hurt him. Let's assume it's okay right now, okay? I know that's a a penalty. But this defensive end, he runs in there and he grabs hold of the quarterback and he smashes him into the ground. And then we, what does he do? What does he do? He runs around and he gets high fives and he makes sure everybody sees what he's done and he's getting all the, you know, he's getting all the glory for it. But this this defensive end, he goes underneath the stands. He goes in the bleachers. What's he doing down there? I thought he was supposed to do high fives. I thought he's supposed to make sure everybody knows who he is and gets his name in, all, in the lights and on the, on the, you know, in the paper. What's he doing under the bleachers? Well, he has a dad and his dad is struggling to uh, get back to his car. So he goes down there hidden from everybody's view and he helps his dad get in the car. Then he goes back out on the field and he makes another play. This time he smashes the running back in the ground. And then instead of running around getting all the glory, he goes back underneath the stands one more time. And what's he doing down there? Well, he's helping a kid, his kid. His kid needs him to help him learn how to do his ABCs. His kid needs, to help, needs him to help him learn how to read. So he's down there doing these menial things. You see, Jesus is willing to forego all the grandstanding and all the notoriety to save us. So that we can enter into the, one of those rooms. He's the defensive end, folks. He's the one that grabs Satan and rings his bell. He's the one who crushes him on the head. He's the one who does it. It's just dirty and gory and nasty looking when he does it. It's all hidden in blood. It's all hidden in being broken. But this is how he takes Satan and crushes him on the head. This is how he deals with our sin. This is how he deals with Satan's power. just doesn't look like what we expect. But then Jesus says, I go, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So he goes to the cross. It's dirty. It doesn't look good. He's under the bleachers. Where's he at? What's he doing? He's hidden in blood and brokenness but He rises up in the resurrection. He walks around with His disciples. He's sitting right now. He's ascended, and He's going to come again with great power, with great glory. He's going to come again. He's not going to be hidden this time. It's not going to be underneath the stands this time. It's not going to be blood and brokenness this time. It's going to be in great power and great glory, and He's going to come for all the people, every one of us, who've Had our hearts topographically changed by the power of the gospel, smoothed over, repenting, and loving Christ. I will come again so that you can be with me where I am. You know, one of the things that I miss about my father is just being with him. That's what I miss. My dad died in 2007, but I'm going to tell you what I used to do. My dad, when, when things got, when we got older, my dad took care of my mom. I watched that. My dad took care of his mom. I watched that. My dad took care of his business at church. I watched that. My dad took care of grandkids. My dad cooked burgers. My dad did all those things that dads do for all their family. And I was kind of around, and liked to talk to him a little bit. But there were six days a year for 10 years in a row. There were six days a year that that man was all mine that man would come pick me up on Friday morning at 4.45 and that man was mine for six days. We went hunting. We didn't have to talk. We talked, but we didn't have to talk. We just enjoyed being together. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to get you to be with him where he is and he's going to love it and so are you. And until He comes back, well, we get to serve the Lord's Supper today. Until He comes back, we get to the Lord's Supper. And until He comes back, we have the Spirit of God working in our hearts, spiritual realities. Who would have ever thought that I would say to you that I would never trade in a worship service at Kids or Kids for any amount of Super Bowl tickets? Who would, ever, who would have ever thought that I would never trade in anything for my Bible. That God help me, folks. I spilled I spilled coffee on my Bible today. I've never done this in thirty years, but now I got a marker. <laughs> I would never trade anything—not not, a, not a, no 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 gold, no money, no Super Bowl tickets. And everybody tells us, man, the movie stars tell us, and the NFL players tell us, and the NBA tells us that they've got it all, but folks, why are they going bankrupt? And why do we see them going into rehab? And why do we see them committing suicide? I'll tell you why. It's because when you get to the top and you take the wrapper off and you look in the box, there's nothing there. But you know what you've heard today is you've heard something that satisfies you. When you open up this box, you get the forgiveness of your sins. When you open up this box, you get a room in heaven that Jesus prepared through his broken body and his blood. And that brings us to the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? This Lord has prepared a place for us through his cross work. And today we get to, even though we're not, he's not here yet. We don't get that experience yet, but we do get. Him giving to us what we need to make it until that time. And so He provides grace for us in this meal to strengthen us, to keep our heads up, to encourage us as we travel this sod, as we say. Jesus says, this body, this this bread is my body. It's given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's given for you. And you and I, we are to remember Jesus making the preparation. We remember it. Remember, he doesn't take the nails; somebody else takes the nails. Remember the preparation; we all remember. But there's more. First Corinthians ten sixteen, the apostle of Jesus Christ tells us that when we drink the bre- when we eat the bread and drink the wine, that we're sharing, we're communing in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we don't believe that we're going to literally eat Jesus' body or his flesh. Or drink his blood, but we do believe that what that bread points out to us, what that wine points out to us, that we take with our physical mouths. That you and I, we are to eat and we are to drink with our spiritual mouths. We think about these energy packets at a marathon. You see these packets; they hold up and they pass out to the guys while they're running they tear the lip off and they shoot all that gel inside their mouths and they get the energy they need to make it down to the next part of the race. And that's what we get today. Jesus is helping us through this life as we look forward to those rooms that that are already there. He's prepared through his body and his blood. And so, all of you who have, know these comforting words, forgiveness, and all of you who know that Jesus has gone through the cross for you to prepare that uh, you that way to that dwelling place, you are invited to this table. Are you a member of a of a church where the where the session, where you have a session of elders who takes care of your souls? Are you a, a person who's professed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've been baptized? And we invite you to this table. But before we sit down together, the Apostle Paul tells us to examine our hearts. To examine our hearts for faith, for repentance, and for obedience. If we're here today and we do not know the things we've talked about, if we don't know the comfort of our sins being forgiven, if we do not know about the body and blood of Christ and that being the way to heaven, then let the trace pass in front of you. And think about your need for forgiveness. Think about Jesus, what He did to prepare the way for those to go to heaven. And so think about that first and then we'll come and maybe we can talk about that. And you can eat and drink at a future time. But if you're here today and you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're putting your faith in that preparation we've talked about that He's made so that we can go to heaven, then please come and eat and drink to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to this time and we praise you and thank you that that a sacrifice has been made, that what we understand on the cross looking so weak, that something so grand and powerful was taking place, that our sins were being paid for, that our punishment was being meted out on an innocent victim for us and that by faith that innocence, his righteousness becomes ours as our sins are imputed to our dear Savior. And so, Father, as we come in faith, we pray that you will strengthen us as we eat and drink today together. We pray that you'll set these elements apart from their common and sacred use And we pray, Father, that you would remind us that everything we do right now is not physical that's most important, but it's the spiritual part. It's the part that we do by faith as we take you again into our hearts and lives by faith. Whether it be the bread and the wine, we get all the grace we need. And so, Father, feed us, we pray. Help us down the next stretch of the way in this life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.